This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. On this week's show, we will be making our monthly sachet around the state to chat with this month's featured Missouri Arts Council artists. From Cape Girardeau, we have an author who wrote 22 books about U.S. railroad history and then won a national award with his first work of detective fiction. A singer-songwriter from St. Louis who is described as not your typical singer-songwriter and who made her singing debut in An Unusual Place. From Kansas City, an artist who paints with cement and whose surreal landscapes and colour palette got a boost by the counterculture of the 1960s. And an artist from Venezuela whose work is a balance of colour, shape and rhythm and who definitely took the circuitous route to a life in Colombia from her hometown of Caracas. There is a lot of ground to cover, so let's start this week in the world of fiction. This year's Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read Book, The Big Door Prize, was a novel about redefining who you want to be in life, who you could be if you were to live your life to its full potential. As the author M.O. Walsh explains when he chatted with me on this show, we are probably all really brilliant at something we have never tried to do. We all have a skill that is lying dormant, awaiting discovery, and yet most of us never know what it is. And my guest, Gregory Stout, is living proof of that idea. Greg spent 27 years working in sales and marketing in the automotive industry. Then, when the company got bought out, decided to go back to school and get a master's degree in education and taught American history and Latin to eighth graders for the next 12 years. And now, in retirement, he is an award-winning novelist. Not that writing is something he only picked up in retirement. Over the past 17 years, he has written and published 25 books, but he says he's been writing since long before that. And the icing on his reinvention cake is that although the first 22 books were about railroad history, in the past 18 months he has published two young adult books of fiction and a book of detective fiction titled Lost Little Girl, which won him the prestigious Seamus Award for Best First P.I. Novel from the Private Eye Writers of America. An award, I should add, that has previously been given to the writers Mickey Spillane, Sue Grafton, Irish crime fiction novelist Declan Hughes, and the author of The Lincoln Lawyer, crime writer Michael Connolly, along with many other notable names in the world of detective fiction. Greg now has a five-year book contract with Level Best Books and is a member of both the Missouri Writers Guild of Southeast Missouri and the Heartland Writers Guild. So for any of us who need a lesson in reinvention, Greg Stout is our man and our guest for the next 15 minutes. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Greg. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. So now that writing is your actual day job, is it still as much fun as when it was an escape from your day job? It's it's fun, but well, I meet a lot of people, you know, who say, gee, I think I have a novel in me. And I think that's <laughs> true. I, most people do have a story to tell because, you know, we've all had shared experiences. We've gained love, lost love, had people die. We've had illnesses. We've had all kinds of things happen. Dogs run away. 
And I think the real question is, you know, can you bring some new insight to it? So, yes, it's still as much fun, but it is also a job and it is also work. You know, I don't knock these things out over a weekend. It takes quite a while. I'm sure it does. I mean, and just because you have good stories doesn't make you a good writer. So there's a a lot of craft that goes into it from your end as well. That's true. I love the fact that on your website, you write about winning this prestigious award for your novel, Lost Little Girl. But then you write, of greater relevance, he has written more than 22 books on the history of American railroads. So are you a literary superstar of the historic railroad genre as well? I think it's called being a big frog in a small pond. (laughs) (laughs) I started doing that. I I belong to a railroad historical society, and they got a new editor at their quarterly publication, and they were looking for somebody to write a column. And so I sent him an email, and I said, I might be interested in doing that. What is it that you want me to do? And he said, you have the job. (laughs) And so with that, I started to write a few things to them, and one of them started to get bigger and bigger. And I said, you know, if I do much more of this, it's going to turn into a book. And my editor said, do you think you could write a book? And I said, yeah, I think I could. And so he was looking to create a publishing company. So I wrote the book and and he published it and we just sort of went on from there. And so eventually I wound up with a second publisher with a somewhat different kind of book, but still Railroad Histories. And that was how that got started. And that was back in 1995. Now, I have to confess, I haven't read any of the 22 Railroad History books. I may, I may not, but You're forgiven. I have read <laughs> I have read the first three chapters of your award-winning novel, Lost Little Girl, because Amazon fed them to me. And it is very compelling. I am hooked and I'm now about to go and order the book from our local bookstore. And I believe it is a book which was originally written by hand on lined college notepaper during your Chicago train commutes in the 1980s. Tell us the origin story of your P.I. Jackson Gamble. Well, I had a job. I was working in the loop and I was living in the suburbs and I had a job that didn't really require me to take work home. I had to I did what I did when I was there, but I couldn't take it home. So I had about an hour commute in each direction with time to kill, and I was checking out. I like to read mysteries, and I particularly sort of cut my teeth on Dashiell Hammett and and Raymond Chandler and uh, Ross MacDonald and writers of that ilk, I think partly because I like the um, first-person narrative style. Well, I ran into some books that I didn't think were quite as good as the others, and I thought, I think I can do better. And so really... That was how I started doing that. And, of course, at the time, this was in the 1980s, you know, there were no laptops to drag around. And and if you were going to type something, it was either on a manual portable or you'd have to have an electric outlet. So I got some college-ruled notepaper and a pencil, and I wrote this thing on going back and forth on the train. And we had just moved from Nashville, where the stories are set, back to Chicago. So, you know, the, uh, the setting was fresh in my mind, and it was easier for me to work with than... And Chicago is a big city, and uh, it's hard to live all over it. So, you know, my whole world was roughly between my home and downtown along the railroad line, and that was about it. But I never got to the south side or some of the other places that I might have included. And even now today, because we haven't lived in Nashville for quite a while, if I'm describing a setting, I have to go on Google Earth and then I go on Street View. (laughs) just to see what's there now. Right. Because it's grown so much. 
So then flash forward 40 years, you send the book out that you wrote in the 1980s, you type it up, you send it out to 16 publishers and four of them want it, which is a writer's dream. Had you made any revisions to the book? Because it doesn't read like a 40-year-old novel. <laughs> there, there were a lot of temporal references that needed to be updated. I had to give <laughs> the poor guy, you know, we had to get him off a payphone and onto a cell phone. <laughs> That was probably the most obvious thing. You know, the rest of it you can kind of step around, but the the whole nature of communication and being able to go online and dig up information about something, that very much had to be updated, yes. You clearly have a real feel for the crime fiction genre, so I'm curious why you also wrote two young adult books, Connor's War and Gideon's Ghost, en route to Lost Little Girl. Well, as you mentioned in your most kind intro... The last 12 years of my professional career, I was teaching in a middle school. And most of the time, I was teaching 20th century U.S. history, which was easy because I lived through about half of it. <laughs> and I was a certified reading instructor. So I had everybody had a, a period every day to teach reading. And part of that involved a read aloud. So I would guess over those 12 years, I probably read, I don't know, maybe 100 young adult books because I had eighth graders. So they come in 13 and they go out 14. And I am an expert, I will tell you, on 14-year-olds. But <laughs> the last quarter of the last year that I taught, the district took pity on me, and they gave me a student teacher. And so she was out in front of the class kind of waving her arms and doing her best to maintain order. And I had nothing to do because I wasn't supposed to get involved in what she was doing unless it turned into a jailbreak. So <laughs> I thought, I read about 100 of these books. Let me see if I can write one. And so during that time that she was there, I did. And then kind of the rest of my life got in the way, and I had I got busy with the railroad books again. And finally I thought, I'm going to send this thing out. And I think I read someplace that um, the fellow that wrote Catch-22 got turned down 20-some times, and I thought, okay, if this gets rejected 20-some times, then... Um, You're you in know, good company. <laughs> then, well, then I know it's not commercially viable. But I think on the 18th or 19th try on that particular one, somebody did pick it up. And so we were off to the races. Well, talking of reading aloud, I would love to share a little bit of Lost Little Girl with our listeners. So would you would you read a section for us? I think because it's a crime fiction novel, we don't want to give anything away. So let's start at the very beginning. Okay. Yeah, I'm just going to introduce the character who is a private detective and his client, I think this is a good place to start because we don't need a lot of context for it. So here we go. The first time I laid eyes on Delcy Lee Hawkins was on a cool, crisp Wednesday afternoon in early October. I found her waiting for me when I got back from lunch, sitting on the couch in the small reception area I keep in the outer office. When I walked in, she was thumbing through a dog-eared, pocket-sized edition of the Bible and humming tunelessly to herself. She looked to be about 50 years old, give or take a page of the calendar. She was dressed neatly, but not expensively, in a conservative navy blue dress, thick stockings, sensible black low-heeled shoes, and a lightweight tan raincoat that had been worn well past the point where a trip to the dry cleaners would have done it any appreciable good. She had a plain leather handbag, which she had tucked tightly under her arm as if it were a living thing that might try to make a break for it if she loosened her grip even for a moment. Her hands were strong and red-knuckled and looked as though they'd done their share and then some of dishes, diapers, windows, and floors. She wore a gold wedding band and tiny gold-pierced earrings. 
Her iron-gray hair was cut short and curled into tight little ringlets that framed her face the way lily pads surround a pool of quiet water. When she heard me come in, she looked up expectantly before pausing to mark her place in the Bible. I smiled and said, Good afternoon. She scanned me up and down like a person who'd been warned to expect the worst and was somehow still disappointed. Are you Jackson Gamble? Jackson Gamble, the private detective? She spoke with a nasal East Tennessee twang. The tone of her question made it sound as if scarcely a day in her life went by that she failed to encounter one or more individuals named Jackson Gamble, each engaged in a different line of endeavor. I assured her that I was indeed Jackson Gamble, the private detective. The corners of her mouth turned sharply downward. Then, Mr. Gamble, you should know that I have been waiting here to see you since 1130 this morning. It is now, she paused, snapped open her purse, extracted a large turnip watch and consulted it disapprovingly. One thirty-five, and I am late getting back to work. May I ask just what kind of a business it is you're running here? <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, despite your multiple reinventions, you have not ever worked as a private investigator. So talk to me a little bit about how you felt your way into the character of Jackson Gamble and the research you did to make him and his story ring true. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, I've read a lot of Hammond and I've read a lot of Chandler and a lot of other writers of that genre. And I, I do like the first person narrative style because it doesn't require me to get inside any more than one character's head. Police procedurals, for example, are very difficult because for one thing, they police can do a lot of things that private detectives can't do. They can get subpoenas, they can force or compel, you know, testimony. PIs can't do that. They can only basically work with what they see. And if all I'm describing is what my character sees, it becomes simpler. I read somewhere that the, the thing you love about writing is dialogue and the thing you hate about writing is plotting a mystery, that you're good at beginning and endings, but getting through the middle is a bit of a drag. Yes. So here you have this fantastic mystery novel. How, how did you overcome the middle? It's called the soggy second act. And, and <laughs> everybody, everybody who writes fiction knows about it because you get out of the gate fast and you kind of know where you're going. But unfortunately, you don't always know how you're going to get there. Otherwise, an 80,000 word book would turn into about 20,000 words where you just, you know, cut straight to the chase. What I have to do is sit with a yellow pad and a pencil where there that is again, and just write a sentence or two of what I think should happen in each chapter. So it's sort of a step-by-step -step progression, and you can fill it out as you go along, and you can add in stuff that pops into your head along the way, but you need to kind of know where the guideposts are because the thing that frustrated me about some of the books that I read on the train is that you're reading along, reading along, reading along, and then you get to the next to the last chapter, and your protagonist, whoever that is, you know, gets a phone call or gets a telegram that you don't get to read and you don't get to hear. And that's basically what solves the mystery, only you're not in on that. Mm -hmm. And so then there's this reveal in the last chapter and you sort of feel like you got cheated. So as the plot progresses, you need to put enough out there that I think when the reader gets to the end, he or she can say, okay, that makes sense. So if you dislike plotting, but I mean, you make yourself go through it. Do you love the editing process? Because often in a mystery story, you have to drop lots of false trails that you need to lay for the reader. But also you're dropping hints of the real story. So I know from other friends that are mystery writers, sometimes you have a dead end that you didn't really see coming. And there's a lot of editing. Do you like that process? Yes and no. I'm working on one now where I actually didn't do 
an outline, and I'm about fifty-five or sixty thousand words like that something light in it, and I I have to sit here and think, okay, now what? Okay, now what? <laughs> and <laughs> and sometimes it just it it's hard to make it hang together. So I the one thing that I learned from this is I need to do an outline, and I'm on the hook for a few more books after this. Yeah. So am I right in thinking that the second book in the Jackson Gamble PI series titled The Gone Man is due out this month? Yes, it originally was scheduled to be released on the 4th. And um, one of the editors at my um, publisher had some health issues. And so pretty much everything got pushed back by three or four weeks. So I'm expecting it um, sometime around the end of the month, first part of November. Perfect. Well, Lost Little Girl, the first adult novel by Cape Girardeau writer Greg Stout, came out last year and is available on Kindle and can be ordered from your favourite local bookstore. And the second book in the Jackson Gamble PI series, The Gone Man, will be out by the end of the month, fingers crossed. You can find out more about Greg on his website at gregorystoutauthor.com. And Greg, thank you so much for making time to chat today. Thanks for having me. I very much appreciate it. Back in the 1970s, when I was first watching a TV music show in England called Top of the Pops, there was an American female rock guitarist called Susie Quattro. She was never really a big deal here in her home country, but she was massive in England, Europe and Australia and was the coolest woman I had ever seen. Dressed in black leather, rocking out with her guitar, her gravelly voice belting out glam rock songs. She was really the first of her kind, the first woman who, as she said, played the ball at their own game. She was a major influence for Joan Jett, Chrissy Hine, The Runaways and lots of female rockers who came after. And whenever I see a female guitarist today, I still think of Susie. And although my next guest is definitely not playing glam rock, there is something about the way Miss Molly Sims rocks the guitar and seeks to be unapologetically herself, writing raw, honest, soulful music that she hopes we can feel all the way down to our bones that reminds me of Susie Q. Miss Molly Sims describes herself as not your typical singer-songwriter. She has released four solo albums, the latest in 2020, titled Reckless, and back in the 20-teens, she also toured across the country with a rockabilly band called the Bible Belt Sinners. Great name who shared the stage with legends such as Chuck Berry and the Queen of Rockabilly, Wanda Jackson. Molly has been described as having the righteous vigour of Lucinda Williams and as being known for her roughneck operatic voice which packs a lungful of dusty soul and straight-shooting lyrics. By day, she works for the School of Rock, both in the United States and internationally, managing their operational standards and compliance, and apparently made her debut singing on an airplane at the age of six. We have a lot to cover. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Miss Molly Sims. Thank you. What a wonderful introduction. I have to say, I love Susie Quattro. That self-titled album with the song Can the Can is a big influence. That is so exciting to hear because I did look on the School of Rock website and there's a little there's a little section that says female guitarists you should know and Susie Quattro is not on that list. Ooh, we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> 
great. Well, she was bass, right? So, I mean, that's what I think of. She's bass guitar. So maybe that list was focusing on electric guitar, six string. Maybe. She's still out there rocking it at 71. She's awesome. Incredible. Yeah. So the Miss Molly Sims story starts on a dead-end circle driving, close-minded, small town in Illinois. There's a moment of airborne precociousness. (laughs) And before you know it, you're sharing a stage with musical legends. What? Is your secret, Molly? Hmm. I think when you are one of those people who is singing from a very young age and and has that strong desire to want to do something, it's a huge part of your life. It drives the decisions that you make as you as you grow up. And I mean, a lot of writing, sitting in class and using notebooks to write not schoolwork, but songs that I was working on. And then I graduated high school early and I went to Houston. I had a family member there I stayed with and I started playing blues jam. So that was really my first experience to be able to actually get on stage and put some of that into practice and say, okay, what is it like to be a Susie Quattro? How do you actually lead a band? Um, You tell them the key, the feel, all those sort of things. So it was was a big learning experience. But coming out of that, it's all about the networking and getting out there. And it's truly a, again, it's a calling. It's like you have to do it. And then sometimes you don't even necessarily want to do it. It's just it is. It's a big part of you. So what was your musical world like growing up? Did you come from a musical family? What were you surrounded by? So it definitely was important in my family to learn some sort of an instrument. So I think, you know, in the old school mentality was everyone should learn piano. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that was something that, you know, my mom knew how to play piano. Grandma knew how to play piano. So my sister and I took a good five years of piano lessons And it wasn't until later that, you know, I had told my mom my whole life, oh, I want to be a singer. She said, well, you've got to learn an instrument that you play along with that. So what do you want to do? I picked guitar. And so around 14, I started playing guitar. It was to impress a boy that I liked. (laughs) But I stuck with that. And obviously, he's not around anymore. So yeah, that was that was really how I got into actually playing guitar. But singing was I mean, there was definitely a love of the arts in the house. And my mom loved to sing. I have like cassette tapes of her doing Janis Joplin and that was always a big part of the household for sure. So having found your way to guitar, how did you find your way to songwriting? Well, growing up, my mom read to me a lot. And I think it's super important if you have kids that you're exposing them to literature and to poetry and, you know, the way young kids' brain works when you're reading that poetry, like it just helping them figure out how to create rhyme and what rhyme is. And she played a lot of simplistic music for me, like country music to learn the rhyme schemes and and be able to anticipate what words coming next and things like that. So we read a lot of A.A. Milne growing up and all the classic children's, you know, Mother Goose and all the verses and stuff. And I think that truly helped build the foundation of loving words and wanting to be a wordsmith. So I can't move on without just asking you quickly about the airplane story. Like how (laughs) did you make your debut on an airplane? I was sitting here going, how does she know all this about me? There must be a lot of interesting things out in the in the web universe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I dig deep and I found one little clip. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. When I was six, I went on my first airplane and there was some sort of a, a malfunction that they had a maintenance issue. And instead of deboarding us and getting on another plane, they actually had us waiting there. It was probably a couple hour wait. And in the meantime, as a little six-year-old kid, I'm like, I want a soda pop. And my dad's like, well, if, you know, go up there and tell the lady. They were, they had a guy singing over the – and it's so weird. It sticks in my head. He was singing the Barney song, like, I love you. you. And for a, a grown man, yeah, it was very bizarre, like, memory. But I went up and said, can I sing a song? And they said, okay. And 
So I sang, uh, isn't it ironic, Alanis Morissette. And that was, <laughs> and when I got done, I said, and I don't know if the lady even knew I wanted a soda. I said, can I have a soda now? And she said, oh, well, sing us one more. And so that's the only song I really knew. So I sang that again and everyone clapped. And <laughs> so I don't think you said it. I think someone said it about you, but about you not being a typical singer-songwriter. But I'm wondering in what way you feel like you are not a typical singer-songwriter. I feel like there's a tendency to when you hear that word or that, you know, you hear singer songwriter, you think of, especially for for women, you think of a very soft voice, you know, singing kind of folksy songs like a Joan Baez or something, the modern Joan Baez. But that's definitely not it. It's it's basically, in my opinion, I'm, I'm going for like a power pop, you know, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, like a little more of a driving voice that you don't necessarily always hear. And so that's that's the kind of side I'm trying to show. Did you train your voice to be a driving voice or was it just something that you were born with you know I guess it's a bit of both right like you have to find your voice you learn how to sing and then you have to figure out who you are right so it's a little mix of both but I I definitely even in the early days of of singing and there's a little video from 2008 and I definitely never had the sweet soft singer-songwriter voice so So you brought out your first solo album in 2013 called Revenants, and that really seemed to get you a lot of attention and kudos, kind of reading various reviews about it. That was really where you kind of made your mark as a solo artist. How did that first album change how you saw yourself? Well, at that time when I put that record out, I was about 21 or so, maybe a little bit older than that, 23 And I really wanted to be coming out of high school. I really wanted to be a blues woman. That was my, oh my gosh, I was so into, you know, Mississippi John Hurt and Colin Wolf and just all the heavy hitters and Big Maybell. So that was what I was going for with that record. And as far as what I learned, I mean, oh my gosh, so much, right? Like we we not only learn from the stage, but we learn from the studio. So it was my first time really being in a variety of different studios and cutting to tape and um, working with different musicians. And in some cases, and in most cases, musicians I had never met before. So for that album, I actually was traveling to Nashville, Tennessee. So that's that's where I learned a lot was, you know, again, working with people you've, in some cases, never met before and and getting the experience in the studio of you better be ready and you better come prepared and know your stuff. And were you prepared and knew your stuff? For the most part. I mean, I, I definitely think that I can remember some painful sessions of, of trying to cut solos and just, you know, maybe you lay it down like 10, 15 times and you're like, all right, I guess we got what we need. We'll make some edits there. <laughs> <laughs> And so that first solo album, was that right after or at the same time as you were part of the rockabilly band, the Bible Belt Sinners? It was before that because actually the drummer from that band, Bible Belt Sinners, played with me at the release of Revenants. So Revenants probably took me several years to actually record. And by the time it was released, I had been in the Bible Belt Sinners for at least a year or two. It's such a great name. Oh, thank you. <laughs> did, did it cause any uh, consternation anywhere that you went? I have a couple interesting stories about it. It sometimes worked in our favor on accident. So there was a time where we were on tour in the South and we had gotten pulled over. I can't remember why or if we just had... Maybe we had stopped and had, you know, anytime you have a bunch of gear in the back of your van, you're liable to catch some flack for it by the police at some point. <laughs> but their police had, were talking to us, you know, where are you going? Where have you been? All that sort of stuff. And, oh, we're the Bible Belt Sinners. And I think on the back of our van, there maybe was a sticker or something. And 
I think that we got, in that case, the tip of the hat. Like, oh, you're the Bible Belt Sinners. Oh, that's a great name, you know. Um, <laughs> I can't remember if it was him who asked me this or the nun on the plane. But at some point, one of somebody asked me, are you guys a, a gospel group? And we always said yes to that question. <laughs> in the South. Yes, of course. <laughs> It was a nun on a plane. I had, well, I did. I sat next to a nun on a plane. I think she asked me the same question. You're in a, oh, you're in a band, Bible Belt Sinners. Is that a gospel group? Of course it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> she didn't ask you about the sinning part. Yeah. People don't seem to catch that. I don't know. When you get asked in those situations, it's, it's befuddling. But Well, I would love to take a listen to a track from your 2020 album titled Reckless. So tell us about a song that you'd like us to play and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. I think we should listen to Red Brick Town, which I believe is the first track on the record. When I think about that song, and I was listening to it a little bit today to kind of prepare for our conversation and just honestly refresh myself because I wrote this song, I want to say around 2014. I initially wrote it for a project that was called STL Here and Now Project. There was a friend of mine, he's in a band called Old Souls Revival. His name's Neil C. Luke. And he did a project that he was essentially trying to gather a group of eclectic STL musicians and have them write a song either that they could never finish that was in progress or a completely new song and then use other musicians from the city to complete it and actually produce a record out of this. But I recorded that album a separate time before Reckless uh, came out and it was for this project and it's a little bit different, but it kind of ties to the theme of this album Reckless, which is I had a bunch of songs that I would have called throwaway songs so songs that you, oh, I, you know, I'm never going to finish that or it's not good enough or, you know, what have you. And uh, that's what I really tried to do here was to take all of those pieces and all those partial songs and make a complete album. And I think it worked rather well. Okay, here it is. Red Brick Town by Miss Molly Sims. Town by Miss Molly Sims. So you're an artist whose musical output doesn't really neatly fit into any one genre other than maybe a broad stroke 
Americana, there's some rock, there's some blues and soul, there's a little Nashville. So for you, what defines the Miss Molly Sims vibe? I briefly mentioned this before, but just to kind of tie it back to the Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe reference, um, definitely always going for like a power pop vibe. That's always been my favorite kind of kind of music in terms of, you know, I feel like there's great lyricism. You have the driving rock beat. You can be versatile. You don't have to be, you know, put in a box. But at the end of the day, like all of those power pop musicians are telling a story with what they're writing. And they're also really giving great melodic songs. You can hear Molly's music on all streaming platforms and you can also find out more about Molly and her music on her website, MissMollySims.com. Molly, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your music and history and for making time to chat this evening. Thank you so much, Diana. This was great. I cannot think about cement or concrete as an art medium without thinking about the bizarre Garden of Eden in Lucas, Kansas, and Mr. S.P. Dinsmore, who, having built his strange concrete art installation around his log cabin home, in a final pay-in to his chosen medium, in death was encased in a glass coffin in a purpose-built concrete mausoleum where he lies to this day. But although he may have been one of the earlier artistic adopters of concrete, he was certainly not the only one. Flash forward 90 years to my next guest, Nick Gadboys, who for the past 30 years has been making abstract cement paintings. And whilst, yes, I know concrete and cement are technically different materials, they kind of fall under the same broad industrial category in my mind. But cement is far from Nick's only medium and genre. He has a body of work that embraces surrealism and focuses on altered landscapes and cultural emptiness, where he employs fluorescent underpainting to maximise a vivid colour saturation of eerily abandoned places. Then there is his body of oil and acrylic landscape paintings illustrating his love affair with the Flint Hills, prairie landscapes and the cultural legacy of the Mother Road, Route 66. He also has a series of abstract works that are based on tangible objects like CNC router boards and which he calls his robot Pollock matrix. But it is his cement paintings that garnered him multiple public art projects, with Nick receiving commissions to create exterior panels for the University of New Mexico and a church in Los Alamos, as well as a cancer hospital and a library in the state of Washington. He says that the underlying unity in his work comes from the use of real-life scenes or objects, and that it was the counterculture of the 1960s that led Nick to see colours not previously known. And he once met Andy Warhol and asked him to draw a soup can for him. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Nick. Well, thank you, Diana. I'm glad to be here. I think we have to start with Andy Warhol. Is it because of you that Andy launched the whole soup can series? No, I was a fan uh, back in the 60s, and he came to speak at the University of Minnesota. And I was an art student, and I got a wacky idea to just go up to him and ask him if he'd make me a drawing. And uh, to my surprise, he did. And it was a red pen drawing of a Campbell soup can. So does that make you an instant millionaire these days? Well, uh, my guitar got stolen uh, about a year later. And I was a poor guy. I was wondering how I was going to get a new one. And then I thought about the Andy Warhol drawing. Uh, Oh, no. So... (laughs) I sold it for $600. Uh, my son will never let me live it down. 
but I, I did get a new guitar. Oh, well, there you go then, I guess. So tell me how Warhol's pop art reality influenced the direction you took with your own painting. Well, I was just very impressed with his artwork. I was impressed, I know at the time, that that he was using like, well, real objects like a Campbell soup can to make art, which was revolutionary then. And I got into the idea of real life being uh, like infusing abstraction and surrealism because it's a new way to look at it. Abstraction has been about the imagination and so has surrealism. But I find that there's real life abstraction and there's real life surrealism. And it's, it's to me, it's much more interesting than when someone's trying to make it up. Right. So in your artist statement about your surrealist body of work, you write that surrealism for you is more than a genre of art. It's a condition of existence, an awareness of the strangeness of life. Yeah. And so I, I see in these works this kind of cultural emptiness and the, and the places that have been left behind. What attracts you to those places? I think uh, attraction to kind of abandoned places probably began when I was influenced by the surrealist painters because especially with de Chirico and his abandoned Italian plazas there was something very compelling about it and it seemed like he was capturing some kind of human condition that seemed real even though he was you know making up his uh, images and his pictures and so once I developed, you know, my surrealism, I began to base it on photographs that I took of real life places that seemed strange. And uh, Area 51 was obviously one of them, <laughs> uh, the entryway. And it's, um, it's just strange, you know, you see, well, that's what it is, you know, it's, I'm not like making up aliens or anything, that's for the imagination, but this is what the entrance looks like. And we know that, you know, the sky over the, uh, <laughs> the complex, it could be green, actually. <laughs> so I take liberties with color and reality. Well, let's talk about those saturated colors and the fluorescent underpainting. I, I love the quote that you say, along with thousands of other Americans from the counterculture in the 1960s, Gad Boys came to see colors not previously known. And I, I love the euphemism of that phrase, but seeing colors while you're tripping and then being able to recreate them in your art must have taken a lot of experimentation. Talk us through that recreating these vivid colors from, I'm guessing from, you know, psychedelic experiences. Well, I got attracted as a lot of people did to, you know, day glow colors back in the sixties. That was, that was pretty fun. We spray painted the dashboard of one of our first vehicles, uh, you know, day glow orange. We thought that was very fun, but I noticed there were colors that I really couldn't, uh, they all seemed real in my eyes, you know, or behind my eyeballs, but they were like blends and mixes of colors, like maybe one color overlaid another, and what I would call it like complex colors. One thing I do to try and get that effect is I like to put down fluorescent paint first, because every time you layer paint over another paint, it's going to start to dull pretty much your white background is going to give you the brightest 
thing that you're going to see. And if you start layering fluorescent over that, I would glaze, putting color in acrylic into glazes, I could go over one color, say, you know, orange and go over it with uh, green and then you have a complex color. Right. It's not really orange and it's not really green, but it's a combination of the two and it starts to create some very interesting color. So when you're talking about the counterculture and finding colors not previously known, are you just simply talking about a fluorescent paint or are you talking about a psychedelic experience? You know, I've had psychedelic experiences. (laughs) I mean, trying to, it's like trying to bring something back from outer space. I mean, you see it, you understand, you cognize that you've seen some, uh, some color that, well, I don't know what to call this thing is, but you know, these are blends I have not seen before. So it's, it's pretty difficult to try and, uh, it's not like you could go to a pyramid and make a sketch or something like that. You're trying to approximate something that you've seen. Right. Well, tell me about the cement paintings. Where did that unusual journey start for you? Well, I was in Los Angeles at the very end of the 80s in an art studio down in the industrial district. And I was starting to get interested in industrial materials, one of them being cement, and I was kind of playing around with it. And then I found in a junkyard something that's called a valve body and it's from the automobile transmission. And I saw the thing, and it was kind of a eureka moment where it uh, it looked kind of like uh, it was all wiggly and um, very high tech, and it looked kind of outer space and like a computer circuit board made out of aluminum. And I thought, this is crazy. This is This is total abstraction, but it's a real object. And uh, so I took it back to the studio. I was trying to figure out what to do with it. And then I thought, well, I'm interested in cement and I've got this valve body that I could actually imprint into the cement. And so I did that and it was kind of eureka. I mean, I was influenced by old cuneiform tablets, you know? Right. And like, okay, here's a secret language. Well, they finally found out what some of that stuff means But this idea of making markings in this kind of language, well, this this valve body was kind of modern day abstract language. And those those works are separate from what you call your abstract works, which also have a focus in the industrial world. But instead of cement, you're working with MDF router cutting boards, CNC router cutting boards, and again, automotive parts, right? Exactly. Well... With the CNC boards, what attracted me to them, again, was the fact that when I first discovered them in a a makerspace in Kansas City, it just kind of blew my mind because it's like something that you might see on the inside of a spaceship or something. It's it's a bas-relief matrix of lines and curves and shapes that are all overlaid over one another on the CNC router cutting boards. And I saw instantly that this is abstract art that is a real life object. The thing is, it's made by robots. I don't program anything into these boards. These, these boards are basically thrown away. So once they get to a certain point of use, they just are thrown away. And I found out about the boards and I wanted to repurpose them into art because I saw that 
I mean, they're instantly visually interesting. And then beyond these abstract and surrealist series, then you have a body of work that may be more familiar to people. There are the non-surrealist landscapes of places like the Flint Hills of Kansas, the Badlands, wide open prairie vistas and the enigmatic rock formations of the Southwest. And there is this message in your work of otherworldliness, you know, when your other bodies of work, but your landscapes really just speak to nature and, and having room to breathe. It's a, it's a kind of a very different body of work. So with all of these very distinct bodies of work, where does your artistic heart beat the fastest? Well, I, I love them all. You know, I just, <laughs> I, I have too many interests. <laughs> That's my problem. And I'm just, uh, you know, it happens to artists, you know, you, you get an inspiration and then you're kind of off down the road chasing the rabbit. And I've loved landscape all along. And a lot of my surrealist paintings are set in landscape. And so it's a, it's sort of a, a platform, a field where I can, well, I can either take it more towards a straight direction if I'm doing Scott's Bluff, a painting of that, or I can take it into a very surreal direction if I want to do Area 51. And so there's a kind of a real spectrum there and I can kind of choose, well, how do, how weird do I want this to be or how, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how, how straight do I want it to be? And the new direction I'm kind of going with this is a mix of uh, paintings uh, in the Route 66 series, which kind of was an offshoot of the straight landscapes. That's kind of verged into the surreal zone. And now I've kind of found an interest in American oddities. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned, you know, S.P. Dinsmore at the, at the beginning. Right. And I, I've seen the, uh, the Garden of Eden and it, it's magnificent and everyone should see it because it's, it's probably the, uh, the most incredible American folk art piece in the country. So will S.P. Dinsmore be in your American oddity series? No, uh, he isn't, but it's an American oddity. But what <laughs> I'm focusing on is that there are um, public art pieces like uh, the world's largest rocking chair. And I'm doing a painting of that now. Um, on Route 66, there was a, a dairy from the 30s that had a milk bottle on top of it, and it's still there. So I'm painting that. And I mean, that's... American surrealism, you know, maybe they weren't thinking about it, but that's kind of how I see it. It's the unusual. There's something, well, playful about it. There's something humorous about it. And it's kind of, it's odd. You know, well, that is a body of work that I am looking forward to seeing. <laughs> to find out more about Nick Gadboys and see his multiple bodies of work, you must check out his website at nickgadboysart.com. And that's spelled N I C K G A D B O I S art.com. So, Nick, thank you so much for taking us on a journey through your otherworldly landscapes and real life abstractions and for making time to chat whilst you are on vacation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. People often ask me how I ended up in Colombia. And like my next guest, it was a rather circuitous route from my home country via Asia. 
My previous port of call had been Bangkok, where I had worked for three years before deciding to fulfill a bucket list item and drive across the United States in a convertible. I stopped off in Colombia for what I thought was just a couple of days to visit an acquaintance, having no idea that I would meet my future husband on night two of my stay and that 17 years later I would still be here. For artist Cristina Nunez, a life in Colombia, Missouri was also something of a surprise. She grew up in Caracas, Venezuela and studied art history at the Central University of Venezuela. But as the economic and socio-political situation deteriorated in her home country, she decided to study for her master's degree in fine art elsewhere. And with a three-year scholarship in her pocket, she chose Kukmin University in Seoul, South Korea. Her plan had been to return to Venezuela, but with things going from bad to worse at home, she decided to visit her brother, who was finishing his PhD at Mizzou, and she never left. (laughs) It helped that her mother had already moved to Colombia to be near her brother, and that her sister and her family also decided to relocate to Colombia from California. So here we both are, intercontinental transplants who fell in love with an Asian country and then ended up in (laughs) mid-Missouri. Christina's art has truly travelled the world too, appearing in group shows in South Korea, China, England, Spain, Romania, Honduras, Argentina, the Dominican Republic, as well as across the United States. Her work is a swirling layering of transparent colour, abstract patterns and shapes laying upon each other as if the viewer were looking through coloured gels to see how light is absorbed by different colour frequencies. And although the shapes are static on the canvas, they have an innate sense of movement as if at any moment they might swirl like the coloured oils of a lava lamp. Her work is currently on display at the Boone History and Culture Centre's Montmini Gallery in a joint show titled Cadence with fellow Columbia artist John Fennell. And for the next 15 minutes, Christina Nunez is my guest. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Christina. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me here. Do you ever wonder where you might be today if it weren't for your brother being here in Colombia? Were you ever tempted to stay in South Korea? Mm, yes, I I really like South Korea. And I, that crossed my mind to stay there longer after my master's. Was there a reason that you didn't? Well, it was too far from my family and... Also, Venezuela has many, many problems. One of those problems is it's difficult to renew the passport. And I say, oh, my God, if I get locked somewhere, mm. I want to be closer to my family. It's not like I have to stay in South Korea and then I cannot leave there because of my passport and all the problems with, the, with Venezuela. So I decide to come closer. Did you love South Korea? I really love it. <laughs> what did you love about it? Ooh, I won the first time in 2008. My plan was to go into China for a residence program. And I have a very dear friend living in South Korea at that time. And he said, well, but you're so close to here. Why don't come and visit? So yeah, why not? But I have no, no picture about what South Korea was. And I just visit. Since the first time, I really love it. Everything in there. It's a peaceful place. Well, all South Korea say, peaceful, it's not peaceful. Everybody's running here and there. (laughs) But for me, that I came from Venezuela, South Korea, 
It's very peaceful, very safe place. Uh, the art is wonderful. Every corner has a gallery. Everything is well designed. Even the music in the bus is nice to me. <laughs> Everything was okay. So every time I could, I returned once a year till I decide to apply for the scholarship. And then I stayed three years before I came to Colombia. So what I am fascinated to hear are your thoughts on how arts education is different across the three countries and three continents that you have lived in. How do they compare and how do they differ? And maybe the reason that I ask is because I had also lived in Asia. I lived in Indonesia and Hong Kong and Thailand. And I always thought it was very interesting mm -hmm. and a little bit um, stifling that students were expected to learn without questioning the authority of the teacher. So I'm, I'm curious about that. When you're studying something that is so full of self-expression, like art, how that was taught differently in Korea than maybe in Venezuela or, or what you've experienced in America? Well, I, I never studied in America, only in Venezuela and Korea. And in the practical classes, like painting and drawing, is not much different. But at the time I have to write my thesis, it was completely different. In Venezuela, if I say uh, something like, this is my opinion or I think that say, of course you think, of course this is your opinion, you're signing this work. You just have to talk with, with are you sure what are you talking about? And in Korea, I try to write the same way I learned in Venezuela, and they say, why are you so rude? <laughs> why? <laughs> you should say, you know, this is my opinion, this is my point of view, <laughs> completely opposite. So I sound rude to them. And if I didn't in Venezuela, then I sound... Like, I'm not sure what I'm talking about. And I think that's a very big difference, how to approach and how to say things. Right. What did you focus on in your art time in Korea? I'm guessing you had access to different kinds of, of media and, and equipment and just a, a different input on, on all of the senses around you, all the things that you were seeing. How did that change your art? Oh, that that is just source of different materials. We give me a whole new point to start. So in South Korea, I have, how to say, I had many, 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 many materials mm. that I can try and use. In Venezuela, it was different. Sometimes I have to order things outside because I couldn't find everything in there. But Korea, South Korea is full of stuff. Not only... Uh, material for art, but many other stuff. Like I started doing plastic, painting on plastic and layers, layers of different type of plastic. And they have so many, so many things that I could try that of course changed what I was doing. And I introduced many other materials that I haven't used before. So the, the plastics that you were finding and working with, is that really where this process of layering these colors on top of each other started, what you call your nuance series of work? Is, is that kind of the background to the nuance series? Yes, I use in Korea the layers to make like the transparency. So I draw like two, three or four layers and then put it all together that make like the transparency so one color on top of the other and the other give me different shapes and different tones. 
and I really love that. When I came here to the U.S., I couldn't find that plastic because the plastic I find here is stick together. So I couldn't make the layers. So I said, well, what can I do? I like the idea of doing layers and the colors overlapping. So I started trying different materials, but without layers. It's only one piece of canvas and the colors overlap, only the colors. But yes, the idea was that came from those plastic overlapping. So you write that you don't paint to say something with a painting, you paint to listen to what the painting has to say and that by putting up no resistance to the art as it arrives, that it leaves you happy. Would you talk a little bit about that idea of listening to the painting? Yeah, well, I, I started painting or liking the paintings too. When I was a little kid, it was like every kid I paint, I draw, I like materials, colors and everything. So it's not that I start with an idea that I wanted to share with anyone. I just wanted to, like uh, any kid, just enjoy those materials, but I get stuck in there. Mm. So I decided to study in the university just to know the, the history, I guess, what I really was fascinated for. And then, yes, I think I'm not taking things out of my me to put it on the canvas. I just letting the materials do their part and they show me things. So when you sit down in front of a blank canvas, you're going to start a new work and you've got a big empty space and you make those first marks, are you thinking about the rhythm of the work or you're thinking about the colour for a shape or you're thinking about the shape? Like where does it start, those first marks on a blank canvas? Well, the first one, now with this series, the nuances, I just make one shape without thinking much. I pick a color, can be any color. I have many different colors prepared and I pick one, not thinking that much. I make the first shape. After the first shape is done, then all the others is trying to give the first one balance. So the first one, not thinking. The rest... I try to think how to give balance to the first one and, yeah, how the composition will finish. Well, you can see the work of Cristina Nunez at the Boone History and Culture Centre through November the 5th. And you can also see her work on display at the Columbia Art League, as well as on her website at ChristinaNunezArtStudio.com. And it is important to include the art studio part of the address, or you'll end up on the website of another Cristina Nunez, who is also an artist. Cristina, thank you so much for sharing a little of your artistic journey today and for making time to chat. Thank you. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guest this evening, author Greg Stout, singer-songwriter Miss Molly Sims, painter Nick Gadboys, and artist Christina Nunez. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. 
finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!